listening to the Business of Baking podcast with Michelle Green, the small business podcast that's all about successfully running your own sweet food company without losing your mind. If you've ever brought dessert to a party and been told you can make a fortune selling those, then you're in the right place. This is an honest, straight-talking podcast about the highs and lows of being in small business. Fueled by late nights, crazy client stories, and a permanent sugar high, we're going to listen, share, and learn our way to sweet business success. Here's your host, writer, speaker, recovering cake decorator, and incurable sweet tooth, Michelle Green. Welcome to today's episode of the Business of Baking and Podcast. It's me, Michelle, here to chat to you today. We're going to continue with the Ask Me Anything questions. I'm not sure if you guys heard the first episode in this, but I put a post up in several of my Facebook groups saying, hey, I'm doing some podcasting. Ask me anything you want to know. And I thought that people would put really, I don't know, easy and quick questions. And in reality, they put a whole bunch of really interesting, fantastic, brilliant business questions in there. So I had to actually separate this out into two episodes, one that's kind of the fun stuff and one that's a little bit more serious or some of the more harder hitting questions that you guys had about running a small business. Quickly, before I dive into today's episode, I just wanted to remind you that I've got a lot happening for the business of baking between now and the end of the year. And that includes three main things. One is the business of baking on tour, bizbakeontour.com, which is my live in-person classes that I teach. They are super fun and super informative. And people tell me that they walk away from them feeling like their whole lives have changed, which is really the whole point of all this. So that's great. I'll be teaching in the United States, in Canada, and in the UK for the rest of the year. And we recently opened a new class in Chicago. So hoping to see all you Midwesterners there. At the end of October, I'll be opening enrollment to Build Your Profitable Cake Business, which is my one gigantic biggest class that I offer, which has a whole bunch of coaching in it and other elements to it. That is really intended for people who are running this as a full-time gig or who intend to make their full-time living out of products. It doesn't have to be cake, could be cookies or whatever, cake pops, whatever your thing is. You just intend it to be your full-time, all-the-time thing. And the other thing that's coming up, which I'm also really excited about, is that this August, my colleague Sharon Wee and I are starting a brand new class called Sweet Side Gig. And that class is going to be an online community and membership forum where we teach business skills only to the people doing it as a side business. So maybe you have a job already and you love it. Maybe you're a full-time parent or carer to somebody. Maybe you just don't want to do this full time. You just want it to be a side gig. Totally cool. But you still want to be legit. And so we created a business class, especially for you guys who want to be a legit side gig. And so keep your eyes peeled for Sweet Side Gig. It's sweetsidegig.com. That one's opening in August. So that's going to be exciting. I'm very, very excited, actually. (laughs) We've been wanting to put something like that together for quite a while, and we finally made it happen this year. And it's an absolute thrill and a joy to me, not only to be working so closely with somebody who I absolutely have enormous amount of respect and joy for, but also somebody who I just, yeah, it's just a joy to be able to provide something to people who need it. And we've had a lot of requests from side gig people, so it's good. Okay, I'm going to jump right into the questions. These all came from my Facebook group, Baking Business Confidence by the Business of Baking, or my other Facebook group, which is build your profitable cake business. So they come from people who are truly in the trenches like you guys. And let's just jump in. The first one is from Stacy. She says, best advice for someone thinking about opening a bricks and mortar store. And how do you know when to open a store? Is there ever a right time? This is an excellent question, Stacy. And I think my answer on this might surprise you. I think when we're looking at opening a storefront and we've been working from home, there's a lot of things you need to consider. But for me, the number one item you need 
need to consider is actually your lifestyle. And you might have heard me say this before, so I just want to reiterate why I think that's important. I think the money matters. I think the space matters. I think all that stuff matters. But the lifestyle is probably the biggest one because once you open a store, even that's if it's just a cake studio or a, a cookie studio as opposed to a retail environment, it changes a lot about your business. It takes it emotionally to a next level. Financially, it takes it to another level. From a managing of your time point of view, it takes it to a next level. There are pros and cons for the store, no store thing that go in both directions. But for me, the lifestyle is probably the biggest one. So when you have a storefront or a low, and we're more calling it a store, but I really mean a location outside of home, you got to think about stuff like, how far is it away from home? Do I then need to account for the fact that I've got to drive there or I've got to walk there or I've got to bike there? If at the moment you do a lot of your work at night, in the darkness while the kids and everybody is asleep, do you really want to be standing in a dark store doing that? You know, if you, what you love about your job now or your business now is that you can do it outside of work hours. Well, are you outside of work hours? Are you going to want to hang out another location, right? Stuff like that. Similarly, if right now your time management is absolutely terrible and you feel like you're working every hour, maybe a storefront is what you need in order to give you discipline because you don't want to be standing there at night. So you've got to learn to work faster during the daytime hours. So my best advice for somebody thinking about opening a bricks and mortar store is to really consider the lifestyle implications that store will have. And the second part of that lifestyle thing is if what you're planning on opening is a retail store, that's pretty hard to run as a one person business because somebody's got to be at the counter serving, somebody's got to be at the back, somebody's got to be clean. Like it's not easy to run a retail business with a single person. So again, that's going to change lifestyle considerations because, you know, hiring, firing, affordability, etc. And in terms of when you should open a store or is there ever a right time? I don't think there is a right time, Stacy. I don't think there's a wrong time either, by the way. I think it's whenever it fits into your life, you have the money to do so and you find the right location. You know, sometimes you're not even looking for that stuff and it just appears anyway. Somebody will randomly tell you about this new store they saw opening or new location or something thing or you know you're driving down the road and you see a four lease sign or something. So I don't think that there is a right time. I don't think there's a time when you go, oh now I should open a store. The truth is stores are not for everybody. It doesn't suit everybody's life. It doesn't suit everybody's finances. It doesn't even suit some products really. Got on you know could you have a cake pop store? I don't know. I don't know that you could justify an entire store based on a single product, but then maybe you could, right? So I don't think that you know there's an exact right time. I don't think you know when. I think if you're looking for a sign, you'll never find one. That's probably most important to me of all. This applies to opening a business, getting married, having kids, whatever. I don't know there's necessarily a sign that just appears. I think it's a decision that you make within yourself and then you set that decision in motion by going and looking at properties, by going and finding out what it costs. I will say that if you are considering this, if you're like, hmm, do I want a store? Do I not want a store? Hmm, what do, you know, I would suggest that you do two things. One, I would suggest you start to find out what this is going to cost. Go look at commercial rents in your area, find out what the overheads are for water, power, register, kitchen registration, all this stuff. Start to piece together, even if it's just a rough estimate of what it will cost you to both start and then run that store. I think that's important to know. And the second thing is I would reach out to other small business owners who own bricks and mortar stores 
and ask them what it's like. Ask the local cafe owner what it's like. Ask the local, you know, shoemaker what it's like, whatever. Go and find people who already do this and ask them what it's like. Would they do it again? What would they recommend? Do they have any advice? They don't have to be cake makers, by the way. It's just about the concept of opening a storefront. I think it's always good to ask other people, not just for their advice, but what they think about it. Yeah. This next question is from Pia and Pia always asks me wonderful questions. I have to say she's got such a beautiful way with words and she has so many interesting things to ask me about. And so this one, she says, in your opinion, is there any general guideline on how long to persist before it being reasonable to expect that a business will turn profit and be viable? What are the warning signs and symptoms to look out for when a business venture is in jeopardy of going under? Do you have any ideas or resources to consider if or when something isn't working out? Like, do I go for a complete change of direction? Do I do more market research? Better cost calculation? Do I focus on a more narrow set of products or trying to offer more? So, okay, Pia, that wasn't one question. That was like 10. (laughs) But I think they're all around this same concept of how do you know when it's time to fold them? Like this this business ain't working. And what are the warning signs to look out for when you think you're going to be needing to fold? And then what do you do if you think that's going to happen? So it's kind of three things. So let's start with that first one. How long to persist before it's reasonable to expect that a business turns profit? Look, your mileage will vary on this, but I will tell you after speaking to hundreds, maybe even thousands of business owners, the average seems to be about three years. About three years to be seeing any actual profit and money from it. And the pattern tends to be that in year one, you are spending a ton of money on random stuff that you think you need, but you don't really, and your pricing is wrong, and you're just kind of like, all over the place. You're just a hot mess really in year one. In year two, you stop buying as much random stuff and you start pricing better and actually learning to understand those numbers a little bit. And so things are kind of settling down a little bit. You're also in year two becoming a lot more clear about what your product is and who you're selling it to. And then in year three is when most businesses tend to hit their stride. So their pricing is more under control. Their spending is certainly a lot more under control and they're a lot clear about what they do and who they do it for. When I started Three Sweeties, I made every product under the sun. Oh, you want cake pop? Sure. Cookies? Yep. No worries. Carrot cake, whatever, this, that. Yes, yes. I just said yes to everything. And it took me time to work out what I enjoyed making, what I didn't enjoy making, what had profit, what didn't have profit, and so on and so forth. So in my experience, it's about three years to actually be seeing some profit and be viable. Now, if you are somebody doing this from home as a part-time side gig, that three years could stretch out more or less. It really sort of depends. And when I am referring to the three-year thing, I'm really referring to people doing it as a more full-time concern, not necessarily 100% full-time, but it's a bigger gig than just a side gig. And the second part of your question, Pia, is what are the warning signs and symptoms to look out for when a business venture is in jeopardy of going under? Gosh, that is a great question to ask. And I think there's probably two sides to this story. One is the financial aspect. Like, how are we doing? Every month, are we losing money? Or every month, are we getting better? I would be looking at a trend of money in and money out. Now, cash flow for a small business is really difficult. You probably will have heard the expression cash is king. So, not making money in a single month is probably not a big deal. But if month over month over month over month over month, nothing's changing and it, or it's getting worse, then that is usually a warning sign. So if you have one slow month, no big deal. If the next month is either where you need it to be or good, that's a good thing. But if you have a slow month followed by a worse month, followed by a worse month, followed by a worse month, and the trend is not going anywhere other than down 
or staying exactly the same, which is bad, then I think for me, that's probably the biggest warning sign. So one is that, the trend of how business is going. And you could measure that in number of orders. You could measure that in how much money you're making in. You could measure that in a whole bunch of ways. But I think it's about noticing the trend. Is are things getting better or worse, staying the same? You would hope that as you're building a business, you might hit the odd stumbling block where one month it's kind of terrible, you know, it's dead of winter and nobody's ordering or whatever, but you would not want that to be the case over time. You want to see some improvement over time. And the second answer to that question for me is the warning sign and symptom to look out for is probably your emotional state. Emotion is something I talk about a lot in business. And yeah, we all have those moments where somebody complains or we don't get a lot of orders and we feel terrible and we feel like the sky is falling and it's all terrible, never going to get better, blah, blah, right? We all have those moments. But if you are waking up every single day with a feeling of dread and trepidation about your business and you are doing things like, you know, not wanting to answer emails because you're afraid of what people are going to say and not wanting to advertise and not wanting to do it. If the thought of your business fills you with dread, anxiety, or trepidation every single day, then that for me is also a business venture going under. Not going under because you are a bad businesswoman or business person, but going under because it's emotionally going under and that's as bad as the financial going under. I'm not talking about the odd day or week where you have a rough time or you're not feeling too positive or you're having a low moment. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a continued ongoing depressive or anxiety state about your business and a desire to hide under the covers rather than actually do any business, that for me is a massive, massive warning sign that this business is not either isn't right for you or that you need to make some big changes. Which brings me to the third part of Pia's question is what do I do? If it's not working out, what do I do? Do I change direction? Do I market research? Do I figure out my costs? Whatever. Do I focus on more narrow products or do I offer more? One of the mistakes I see business owners make is that when things are not working out for them, they try this insane like shotgun approach of just like spraying everything with bullets and hoping that it work. They hit a target. You know, one day they're doing a freebie on Facebook. The next day they're doing a giveaway on Instagram. The next day they're doing a buy one, get one free. The next day they're doing a, like all orders half off. The next day they're doing like, oh, I'm doing it for ingredients only because I love you. The next day they're doing some charity thing. The next, like, you know, nothing says a dying business more than desperation tactics. If you have a sale once in a while, no big deal. But if you're having a sale every day of the week, right? And it's always different. It's always new. And you're constantly in Facebook groups being like, has anybody found a way to get more business? And you get 10 answers and you use all those 10 answers. That's really not great. And so I will say that people can feel and almost smell desperation in a business. So the first thing to do is not randomly start selling something for nothing. That's just not going to end up good for you in any realm of the imagination, just not good. So first answer, Pia, if it's not working out is don't panic. I know easier said than done, but don't panic. The second thing is to, I would actually get a business mentor or a friend or a fellow small business owner or somebody you trust. I would not use a partner, okay? I would use somebody whose opinion you value and trust, a mentor of some kind, and sit that person down and say, my business isn't working. And together, and I think it's important to do this with somebody else's eyes on it, work out what's not working for you. Is it that you're just not making enough money? And if so, why? Are you not getting enough orders? Or is it that you feel like you're charging nothing for something? Is your issue you are not doing any marketing and nobody's coming to your door? And if so, why is that? And how are we going to fix that? I think you need to do a little bit of a deep dive in your business, 
figure out, dig really deep, by the way, ignore all the lies you're going to tell yourself. The first time you say, what's wrong with my business? You're going to come up with some really stupid surface answer. Like my husband is not supportive or people only want to buy cake from the cheap cake lady. The first answer out of your mouth is going to be some rubbish lie you tell yourself. So I want you to dig below that rubbish lie and find the real truth. Ask yourself, what's really going on here? and answer that question. Then ask yourself the same thing. Okay, in that, what's really going on here? And keep asking yourself that question, what's really going on here, until you reach the core of the matter. And you will know when you reach the core of the matter because you'll feel it in your gut. You really will. Once you have the answer to what's really going on here, then you can actually see about what you're going to do about it. So I can't give you the idea or what you should do if you feel like everything is falling apart because it's impossible to give you a really nice tidy answer on that and tie it all up with a bow. You have to sit down with someone else and ask yourself what's really going on here. And the reason I suggest you do it with somebody else whose opinion you value and whose opinion you trust is because often other people can cut through our rubbish a lot faster than we can. So you want that friend who's like the massive truth teller. You want that friend who's like, you know, the one who doesn't pull any punches. Now, if you find yourself going, oh, it must be because my chocolate cake isn't too chocolatey. Seriously, rubbish. It's never that. It's always some deeper, deeper issue. And your job is to get to the bottom of that deeper issue because only then can you actually work out what the solution to that is. So that's my answer, Pia. To be honest, I think that most people I meet give up far too easily. Most business owners I meet quit based on one thing happening. A customer complaint, a cake falling over, somebody making inappropriate or rude comments. I think that in the common day and age, opening a business is pretty easy. Keeping a business going is a lot harder. And I think people give up at early hurdles far too quickly. And I actually think that some of the most successful businesses I have ever been given the privilege of being a part of or seeing in action have been successful due to their persistence and their willingness to keep trying even when things are tough. Now, I'm not saying don't ever give up because yeah, there is going to come a time when you're like, you know what? This just isn't working for me. But I think that you can't do that in a mature fashion until you've sat down and worked out what's really going on here. So that's my advice for that. I'm not saying persist until you're homeless and broke and starving. I'm saying if things are going south, recognize that they're going south and do yourself the favor of sitting down and figuring out what the reasons for that are, the deep reasons for that are, and then you can go about fixing those. Joe wants to know, any advice on taking the step of employing staff, especially for a home-based baker, if possible? Great question, Joe. Thank you. I actually wrote a number of articles on this, and I actually got a couple of guest people to write articles for me on this. So if you go to the blog, thebizofbaking.com, you will find that I have written a number of articles about employees. But let me give you some advice in the context of this podcast. There's a couple of things to consider when employing staff. I personally have made a whole lot of mistakes on that stuff, but I also did a lot of stuff really, really right that I'm really proud of. And I'm still friends with and in contact with most of my employees, not all, but most of them. So, and if I wanted to be, I could pick up the phone and call them and they would not be like, why are you calling me? So I feel like that's also good news. So when it comes to employing staff, especially for a home-based baker, there's a couple of things you need to think about. First is what you want them to actually do for you. Are you needing them to do admin? Are you needing them to make icings? Are you needing them to cut cookies? What are you needing them to do? Getting really clear on what you need that person to do for you is 
a fantastic first step because a lot of times we think I've got to hire staff, but we think that out of being overwhelmed. We don't think that out of a, could I run my business better point of view. So step number one, I think is kind of sit down and just make a list of all the stuff you would like that person to do. From there, think about, okay, how much time do I need this person to do this? If I had a helper only on Fridays, would that be enough to ease the burden of stress? Or do I need somebody Thursday and Friday? Or do I need somebody full time? Start to think about what having that person in your business would look like and where they could be the most use to you. I personally always hire for personality and train for skill, which is something somebody else actually taught me and it has always stood me in good stead. And I think if you're hiring from a home base, that is really very, very vital because in a home business, in any business, when it's just you by yourself, if you don't get along with that person, it's going to be disaster town. So I've always felt that you hire for personality and train for skill. Look, what we do is not that hard. If it was, there wouldn't be this many of us in here complaining that our industry is completely overcrowded, right? So because what we do isn't that hard, we can train people to cut fondant. We can train people to dip cake pops. We can train people to dip caramel apples. Wow, that was a mouthful. Uh, you can teach people to do all kinds of things. You can't teach them to be good, nice, friendly people that you like with a decent personality. So taking on the step of employing staff for me is figuring out what I need them to do, figuring out what that position might look like in my business. And then when I get to the stage of hiring, really hiring for personality and training for skill. I think that that's something you can't underestimate how important it is to get along with other humans. It's really vital. I know it sounds like basic information, but it's, it's super mega vital. And the other thing about being home-based, some people feel a little bit weird about having employees in their home. Other people are cool with it. Honestly, that's a boundary you need to work out for yourself. So if you are not comfortable with having somebody work for you in your home, then that therefore your business is hamstrung by the fact that it's you and only you doing all the work all the time. That's something you need to think about, right? If you're not cool with it, well, then what are you going to do? How are you going to hire somebody if you're not cool with it? If you are cool with it, I would still be thinking about boundaries. You know, will I allow them to use my microwave to cook their lunch or whatever? Will I allow them to enter into our bedrooms if I need them to? Or do they have to only stay in the cake studio? Whatever. I don't know what your boundaries are, but in a home business, I would be thinking a little bit harder about the boundaries. You know, would I give this person a key? Would I not give them a key? That kind of stuff. You know, and you also need to think about also insurance. If somebody else works in your home business, do you need insurance? That kind of stuff. There's a whole lot of practicalities about it, but I don't want you to get scared off by that stuff. I think that having help is one of the greatest gifts we actually give our business because I'll tell you what, when you hire another person, that means you're able to provide more product for more people, thus making their lives better. You're also employing another person, making their life better. I considered hiring to be a challenge but I also considered it a great honor. I liked being responsible for other people because that meant that my business was doing good in the world. It really is. If I could give a job to a mom who has kids and who can only work, let's say between like 9.30 and 3, but she can still provide for her family to a degree and be a good mom, I think that's a great honor. So a lot of people I think are afraid of employing staff. I don't think you need to be. It comes with its own challenges for sure, but I don't think you should be afraid of it. I think you should look at it as a marker of success because I know that I certainly do. Erica asked me, how do you relax or de-stress? Tips on how to tackle the overwhelm when it hits. Great question, Erica. This is something that our entire industry suffers with, which is feeling overwhelmed and feeling 
stress and anxiety and like, oh my God, it's all happening at once. I feel like I'm going to just, I don't know which direction to go first. I guess I have a couple of tips for that. Personally, I engage the services of a therapist. I see her as and when I need to. So sometimes that's every week for a couple of weeks if I'm going through a rough time. Sometimes that might be once a month. Sometimes I might not see her for six months, but I engage in regular therapy. I think that's really important for me to sit and talk to somebody and just detangle the many, many, many bits of yarn that are all tangled up in my head. I find that immeasurably helpful and her support very, very helpful. That's one of the things I do. Another thing I do is that I exercise daily. So I go for a walk every single day. Look, I miss the odd day now and again, I'm not perfect, right? But most days I'm out there for an hour walking and either listen to music or these days I listen to podcasts because I really love them. And listening to other people talk is a joy because I listen to myself talk a lot. So I walk and even on days when I'm not feeling very fit and I'm not like, you know, arms swinging, like, look at me, Jane Fonda walking down the road. Even if I'm just you know, walking the dog, going around the park or getting fresh air, I find that fresh air helps me enormously. When I'm stuck at home indoors and it's just like recycled air or whatever, a miserable pain in the butt. But if I go out and I see the birds and I see the trees and I just get out, even if it's just in the mailbox and back, that makes a massive, massive difference to me. So particularly in moments of overwhelm, I get outside. I used to do this when my babies were small too, by the way, when I found that they were all crying and screaming and driving me nuts, I would literally take a picnic blanket it, throw it out the back door. I swear, not even like three feet, right? Just out the back door. And I would take them all out there and meal out them. And somehow in the sunshine and in the fresh air, things didn't look so bad anymore. You know, they just didn't. So that's another way that I relax and de-stress. I also spend a lot of time with my friends. My friends mean the world to me because I came here from another country and I don't have my own family here. My friends, my girlfriends have become my family. So one of the ways that I de-stress or relax is I make time for them. I'll call someone. I'll be like, hey, do you want to go for a coffee. I feel like I'm going to kill my kids, <laughs> that kind of feeling. I really rely on my friends a lot. So that's one of the ways that I relax and de-stress. I also meditate daily. My track record, this isn't great. Sometimes I'll go like nine months with never missing a day and then miss it for three months and then I'll come back to it. But I meditate daily. I use an app called Calm, C-A-L-M, Calm. And one of the things the Calm app has is sleep stories, which are basically very beautifully told stories by all kinds of people. And sometimes I'll just play a sleep story before bed and I'll sleep a lot better. It's not an actual meditation per se or a guided meditation, but it sort of feels like it. So I have a lot of different methods for relaxing and de-stressing. One of those is eating, which I feel like I shouldn't say because that's a bad thing, but it's true. Like I will happily emotionally eat and not feel crap about it. I'll be like, you know what? Eating this bag of chips is going to make me feel better. It's only going to be for 10 minutes, but I'm going to feel better. Concentrating on something else. I don't recommend eating as a way of dealing with emotional things. But sometimes a hot cup of tea and a cookie is all you need to just sit for five minutes and focus on something else. So I think the best advice I have for you is dealing with overwhelm is number one, find a distraction. Game on your phone, talk to a friend, see a therapist, go for a walk, just find something else to take yourself out physically out of that darkness. That's probably the first thing. And the second thing I would say about this is that overwhelm comes when we've not planned well. So when I'm feeling really overwhelmed, like there's so much to do and so much to see and all these people need my attention and oh my God, I'm panicking, 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 panicking. I actually remind myself of one of my favorite sayings, which is how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. And so I will sit with a piece of paper and a pen and I will just do a good old fashioned to-do list 
all right, what are all the things I've got to do? And then I'm going to look at that list and go, okay, which of these need me to do them? Which of these can I outsource to my kids, husband, friends, whatever? Which one of them am I stressing about that's really not going to make a difference in my life? I don't know about you, but I find there's a bunch of stuff on my to-do list which doesn't matter. I don't know why I do that stuff. It doesn't matter. Next week, if it's still sitting on my to-do list this week, next week, and the week after, what's not that important to begin with? So for me, overwhelm is about controlling that overwhelm by going, right, let me sit down, take stock of what I got to do, and then one bite at a time, just do the things that need to be done. And sometimes I start with the small stuff because I feel like if I get a couple of wins on the board, I'm feeling pretty good. Yeah. Okay, Fiona says, there is a perception, even among bakers, that home-based bakers and decorators are not equal to those who have stores. Why is that, and how can we address this? Oh, man. Fiona, this question is great, but also irritates me to no end, because I hate that perception. Because I do not believe that people who are decorating from home are any worse than people who are decorating from a studio or from a storefront. I think it's such a terrible perception. I'm not denying it exists. It does. But I think it's awful. And I think there's a couple of reasons why that perception exists. The first one is that there's this feeling of impermanence to it. So when you have rented a storefront or got a studio or are working in a space out of home, you've got skin in the game right? Or the perception is that you've got skin in the game. You've spent money, you've spent time, you've legitimized this business to a higher degree, etc. Whereas somebody that has a home-based business could shut that stuff down tomorrow. They don't necessarily have as much risk involved in running it from home. Now, I, by the way, say that that's one of the benefits of running a home-based business is that you can get out whenever you want. But I think that that knowing that those people could just shut the doors whenever they feel like it, you know, because it's easier to do, I think that that perception is probably why we have this feeling that home-based bakers and decorators are not equal because we think, oh, they're just like playing around. They haven't, you know, gotten a lease or they haven't, you know, moved into a storefront or whatever. I think it's unfair, but I think that that sense of impermanence is probably one of the reasons why we don't value our home-based businesses as much in our industry. I think it's unfair, but I think it's true. Perhaps that's the biggest reason why actually is the impermanence factor. We think that they're not taking it legitimately because they're not investing in equipment or staff or a location or whatever. I think it's unfair, but I think that's how it is. I think another reason why we think that home-based businesses are not as legit or not equal to those who have stores is public perception. As consumers, we simply don't take home-based business as seriously. We don't right? Think about how you feel about a business based at home versus a business based in a storefront. We don't take it as seriously. That's a cultural thing. I don't think that that's a inherent to our industry. I think that that's cultural. If I'm going to a hairdresser who does it out of her home and I've got to wash my hair in her kitchen sink and, you know, sit in her dining chair while she cuts my hair, is she any worse of a hairdresser? No, not really. But my perception is that she's not as professional or not as, it's not skill and talent. It's the professionalism part of it. Whereas if that same woman did my hair in a salon where they give me a coffee and a cookie and they, it's a nice sink and a beautiful smock and whatever, you know, again, it's not a question of her talent. It's a question of, yeah, I would perceive that differently. Let's extrapolate that even further, right? When we look at a car from a Hyundai dealership versus a car from a Audi dealership, they both drive, they both have the same wheels and whatever. They both do what they want them to do, but our perception of those brands is different because of the way they are presented. So I think 
in part, it's cultural, right? I think that's just how it is. Now, in terms of how we can address this, brilliant second question, actually, Fiona, and I'm glad you asked it because it's not good enough to just be like, I hate it that people think this of me. I think you have to ask the second question, what do I do about that? So what do you do about that? You do everything in your power to ensure that everything about your company and your business experience is professional and comes across professionally. So that means you do not answer inquiries via text. You do not have a dirty, grotty, messy place for people to come and do a cake consultation with you. You don't put pictures on your social media of cakes on a stove. You don't answer the phone in an unprofessional manner. You don't email people at midnight. You basically act as if you are the professional, amazing business that you are so that the fact that you are based at home becomes basically irrelevant. Maybe it doesn't even come up in conversation, really. So how you address this is be that business that you want to be, be the level of professionalism and grace and care and attention to detail that you want to be regardless of your location. Don't act dodgy. Applies no matter where your business is based, home or in a shop. Don't act dodgy. Don't do unprofessional things. Have everything look as good as you want it to look. I have met a number of home-based businesses whose marketing collateral, their postcards, their stickers, their logos, their websites, their social media accounts, you would have no idea that they're based in a store. I'm not implying for a second, by the way, to be ashamed or embarrassed or to hide it. I'm not implying that at all. I'm simply saying, act in the manner you want your business to be perceived so that location becomes irrelevant. And that is all I have to say about that. Other than, to, well, no, I'm going to add one more thing, which is that some of the most incredible bakers and decorators I've met have never worked anywhere outside of their home. So being home-based not a marker of quality, not a marker of skill, but you need to manage that perception by being the best business you can be and have your location be irrelevant. Let your product and you stand for it. Let your business stand for itself, not the location. Stephanie says, you took something you loved and made it into a business. So it became work versus fun. How do you handle the pressure, stress, demands, and keep it fun and relaxing rather than I really hate my job? Brilliant question, Stephanie. Thank you for asking it. This one is interesting. Interesting because most of us don't actually acknowledge what you have said, that you took something you loved, which was fun, and you made it into a business and therefore it became work. Most people don't acknowledge that that's exactly what they've done. They think, I love making cookies. I know, I'll turn it into a business. I'll make some money out of it. I can make more cookies. It's going to be extra fun because I'm doing more of it and I'm getting paid. Hooray. It doesn't work that way. I mean, well, it does. I mean, you, well, hang on. Wait, it does. As in you get more orders, you make more money, you get to make more cookies. Sure. But once it goes from being hobby to being business, suddenly you lose the freedom, right? It's not you can do it when you want, as you want, how you want, who cares if that one looks a bit wrinkly. You suddenly have a set of rules you've got to follow imposed by someone else. So excellent job, Stephanie, firstly, for acknowledging that it changes. Now, how do you handle the pressure and stress and demands and keep it fun and relaxing? Good question. I think I kind of answered this a little bit earlier in terms of my answer to the how do you de-stress question. But part of what I want to acknowledge and say to you is that you have to accept that it's not going to be a party all the time. 
you know what? Answering emails is not that fun. Cleaning up the floor at the end of a long day of decorating, also like not fun. So I think one of the things you have to acknowledge is that, yeah, with all the fun I'm getting to have, I'm also going to have to put in some hard work here and do stuff I don't want to do that I don't really like. So part of it is just acknowledging that not every moment is going to be one big buttercream party. It's really not. And I think the second part of that is gratitude. Sounds dorky and nerdy, but just stick with me here. Every day that I ran my business, I remembered at the end of the day to close the day with gratitude. Meaning, how many people out there are getting to make cake for a living? How many people out there are getting to run their own business? How many people out there are getting to call the shots? How many people out there are doing a job which brings joy to people, other than maybe the florists? And even they do funeral flowers. How many people are getting to do what I get to do? The truth is very few. Most people are stuck in pressure, stressful, demanding jobs that they don't necessarily want to be in. Doing things they don't want to do for people they don't want to do it for. So maybe it's not the answer you were looking for, but that's the truth for me, is that even on the hardest, bleakest, darkest, most stressful of days, I remind myself to stop even if only for a moment and think, hey, I built this and I get to do this and lots of other people do not get to do this. So that already makes this awesome. That already makes this kind of cool. It's not always fun. It's not always relaxing, but you know what? Heck, I did this and I'm really proud of that and I'm grateful that I get to do this. So that's probably my best advice to you, Stephanie. Acknowledge that, yeah, it's not always going to be fun and relaxing and to be damn grateful for whatever you've got because whatever you got is more than most people. That's another one, really. Okay, so I tell you what we're going to do. I feel like I could answer these questions all day, every day. There's literally, I think, another three, four, five dozen more questions in here <laughs> that I could answer. And maybe I'll end up doing a third one sometime in the future. But let's pick one when we can kind of go out on a high note. Let's see, because there's some great questions in here about, you know, how do you grow a business and, you know, what do you do with like no prices or whatever, this kind of thing. I'm going to finish this with Kristen's questions. I really, it's quite a simple one, but I love it. Here we go. Kristen says, am I the only one that can have tons of successful cakes and then one order that I don't feel turns out as amazing as I'd planned and now I'm ready to burn my apron? <laughs> You know what, Kristen and everybody else listening to this, oh, girlfriend, you are not alone. We are all like that. We all feel that way. You can make hundreds of thousands of cakes and cookies and cake pops and whatever else you make, dipped pretzels and God knows what, and they're all perfect. And then that one does not turn out like you wanted. And not only are you ready to burn your apron, but you're also ready to just like, you know, melt into scrap metal all your cookie cutters. And you want to just like chuck that flour out the window and put your KitchenAid on the landfill. Oh, girlfriend, we are all this way. So are you the only one? No, you aren't the only one. The better question is, what do you do about it when you feel like you're ready to burn your apron? <laughs> Isn't there a pop song that goes something like the best way to get over someone is to get under someone else or something, which I feel like I should not be talking about sex in this podcast, but anywho, I'm pretty sure that's a pop song. Like the best way to get over someone is to get under someone else. I kind of feel like that's true, not in a literal sense about cake orders. Best way to get over one you're not all that happy with is just start a new one. Just start a new one. Like seriously, be like, I hate that one. Okay, it sucks. I'm not happy. Whatever. I'm moving on and just get on to the next one because the good ones far outweigh the bad ones 
by, you know, a factor of bajillion to one. So my advice on that one is you're not the only one who can have one crappy order kind of just make you feel like you want to pack it all in. But for me, the best solution is just to get back on on and do the next one. Or another way that I like to put that is fall down 10 times, get up 11. Get that spatula back in hand, get that cake back in the oven, start whipping up that buttercream again and just get on with it, girl. Get on with it is my advice on that one. Thank you guys so much for listening to the podcast today. It is a great joy to be able to record all these episodes. I love them. And the feedback that I've been getting has been amazing. And I have to tell you that it's very tempting not to ditch the blog altogether and just podcast full time. I have thought about it, but I don't think I'm quite ready to do that yet because I still do love writing. It's one of the great loves of my life. So thank you for listening. I appreciate you being here. I appreciate you being part of my life. And I appreciate all these amazing questions. I am actually going to go back and answer these. If I don't answer them in future podcasts, I'll answer them in another blog. And if you've ever got a situation that you need a hand with, or you just want a virtual cuddle, or you just want to send some gratitude my way and say, hey, Michelle, thanks for being awesome. I'm happy to hear all of that. I'm even happy to hear if things aren't going well, because maybe I can help you get out of the rut. Hey, you're welcome to email me. My email address is easily found on the blog and on the podcast and a bunch of other places. It's michelle at thebizofbaking.com. I'm always happy to hear from the people who have something to say, even if all they want to say is like, hey, Michelle. I'll be like, hey, how are you? (laughs) I personally reply to every email that I get and it's a great joy to do so. Thanks for being part of my life. Be awesome today as every day. And you know what? It's not always easy and it's not always fun, but the fact is we get to do it and that makes our lives pretty awesome. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Business of Baking podcast. You can find show notes, links, and other fun stuff for this and previous episodes at thebizofbaking.com. Until next time, may your oven stay evenly hot, your ganache never split, and may you always be in the business of being awesome.